0: This morning, though, as I mentioned, Matthew chapter 4, I'm going to read for us uh, verses 12 through 17 and begin in verse 17. Now, when Jesus had heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan the Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land in shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Luis Clasch was an epic fundraiser. He worked for the Moody Bible Institute. He's what we would call their development director in the late 1800s, early 1900s. He used his connections with the school and the evangelists to create a network of donors that he used to fund a, another network of orphanages around the world. Now, this is an era of orphanages springing up globally, but most orphanages focused on food and clothing and shelter, of course. But what we've made uh, Klopche's orphanages unique is that they focused on literacy and then the Bibles. He printed Bibles. And as I mentioned, he was an epic fundraiser by today's dollars. It's estimated that he raised for his orphanages over $3 billion, which is just a staggering uh, number. In 1899, he purchased a magazine, the Christian Herald magazine. He purchased it not for the, uh, because he liked the magazine, but he purchased it for their printing presses. He was realizing that he was having a difficult time buying Bibles cheaply to send to the orphanages around the world, and so he bought his own Printing company, a magazine, and he discovered this after owning it very shortly. That magazine printing presses were different than book printing presses, and that they were designed to use multiple colors of ink. So he got together with professors from Moody, and they went through and identified all the words of Jesus in the Bible, not just in the New Testament, but also uh, if there was an Old Testament verse that was quoted by Jesus, they put that in uh, red also, and they developed the world's first red letter Bible. Um, Now, what makes this an interesting story is that you couldn't buy this on the uh, the shelves in the stores in the States. Churches didn't have them in the States. For decades, the only place you could get a red-letter Bible was in these orphanages around the world. I use that as an introduction to draw your attention to verse 17 here. What you find in verse 17 is the first red letters of Jesus' ministry when he declares, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you're in Mark's Gospel, these are the first red letters in Mark's gospel. In Matthew's gospel, there are some other red letters before this, but none public. They're his conversation with John the Baptist, where he says, "This is fitting to fulfill all righteousness." and then they're his conversation with the devil in Matthew chapter four, again, not public. But what's happened here is that Jesus is beginning his gospel ministry. You see in verses 12 through 16 that he's intentionally moved to Galilee to start his ministry. He's following John's ministry. John's ministry came to an end back up in verse 12 when John was taken into custody for calling Herod to repent. And so Jesus moves from the shadows, so to speak, of Nazareth. Nazareth is up on the hills. It is a small town. It's insignificant. It's not the way back then. It's it's big now, but back then it's not on the way to anything. He moved from there out of the anonymity of the hills to Galilee. That's where the people were. That's where the highways were. That's where the hustle and bustle of that part of Israel took place. And he moved there. To begin his public ministry, he begins his ministry with verse 17 telling others to repent. And uh, I think it's helpful to get your mind around what he's doing here. He's beginning his ministry as an evangelist. God had one son, and he made him an evangelist. He doesn't come to Galilee as a prophet like John the Baptist did, he doesn't come to Galilee as as a high priest like Caiaphas was in Jerusalem. He begins his public ministry as an evangelist, making a public appeal to the masses of people to be reconciled to God. And Jesus comes as an evangelist. It's another way of saying he comes as a gospel preacher. This is before the cross and resurrection. Nevertheless, he's still preaching the gospel. Now, the gospel in a nutshell is this, that the second member of the Trinity, God himself becomes a man adds him to himself a a human nature, is born to Mary, lives a sinless life on earth, never sins a single time through his life. But more than that, he never fails to do what the Father would have him to do. He completely obeys all of God's commands. He does everything God wants him to do. He fulfills all righteousness and avoids any sin. At the end of his life, he's betrayed by a friend, handed over to be murdered by the Jewish leaders and executed by the Romans. The death he died was not his own death. His own death, uh, the wages of sin is death. Jesus didn't sin, and so he didn't deserve death. But instead, he died what's called a substitutionary death. He died in our place. He physically died, but he died bearing the the penalty for our sin, the consequences for our sin. The wrath for our sin that God had stored up was released upon Jesus. So he died in our place. Three days later, he rose from the grave, having atoned for our sin and demonstrating that if you place your faith in his substitutionary death and vicarious resurrection, that you too can be raised to eternal life like he was. That's the gospel. Here, he's teaching it before his crucifixion, before the cross, long before the cross. And he preaches it with a series of imperatives, a series of commands. Now, these commands is going to be outlined this morning. I want to look at the two imperatives of evangelism. The two imperatives of evangelism. As you're looking at these, keep in your mind what's happening here. This is the, the king coming back to his people. To use the analogy from Luke's gospel, the king has gone away on a journey, and he is returning. He's coming back to his own people. His people are gathered around him. Picture the king getting off the boat after being absent for a while, and his people are gathered around him at the dock, and there's a sense of expectation, a sense of listening, thinking, what will our king ask of us? What does he want us to do? Well, he wants you to believe the gospel, and this is where these two commands come from. He comes with these two commands of evangelism, these two imperatives, and my point in this morning is hoping that as you share the gospel with others, that you build your gospel message around these two imperatives. The first of these two imperatives is the word repent. Repent. It's interesting that Jesus begins his gospel ministry not with the command to believe or grace or even love. Those aren't the first concepts out of his mouth, but the first concept out of his mouth is Repent. And that's true with all famous preachers in the Bible. When you think of uh, really any preacher or prophet in the Bible, it's likely their first words repent. This is the exact message that got John the Baptist killed, by the way. He's not killed at this point in Mark's gospel or in Matthew's gospel. He's merely imprisoned. But if you remember, John was out in the wilderness telling everybody to repent. And the Israelites were flooding out to him to listen to his preaching, so much so, even the Pharisees came out to him. And remember when John saw the Pharisees, he said, you brood of vipers, who told you to repent? <laughs> well, he eventually told the wrong person to repent. He told Herod to repent of his incestuous marriage. And so Herod had him arrested and would eventually have him killed. So John is moved, removed from the scene in verse 12. It's at that time, verse 17 says, at that time, the time of John's arrest, that Jesus begins to preach and preach. Many of you know this, of course, but there's two different Greek words for time. One is chronos and the other kairos. And chronos means chronologically. That's not the word that's here. This is the word for a season. The season of John the Baptist has passed. There's a new season. There's a new epic, a new era on the horizon. And this is the the era of Jesus' preaching. It's at that time, that season, that Jesus comes forward. And he picks up exactly where John the Baptist left off. It's not a new message. But it is a message of repentance. Now, the word repentance in the New Testament, it literally means to change your mind. It means to change the direction of your mind. You're thinking this way. Repentance means you turn it around and you think the other way. It could be described as a U-turn, so to speak. It's a change of mind that changes your heart, that changes your actions. That's repentance. You know, if you try to imagine with me uh, the days before GPS, children, there was such a day where You didn't have your phone telling you where to go, and you just had to go, and you had to to go to the store or to your friend's house, and you had to navigate, I don't know, by the stars or something. How did they do it back then? (laughs) I guess by memory or recollection, you think, oh, this is the turn, and you would just drive places. People lived somehow in this era. And it's possible that you could take a wrong turn. Now, here's the thing different then than today. When you took a wrong turn back then, you didn't know it was a wrong turn, even right away and you'd be driving in the wrong direction without realizing it now at some point maybe when your wife is saying i think that's the wrong turn at some point it begins to dawn on you this is the wrong turn i'm going the wrong way and there's still a time lapse between that realization and you turning the car around especially if it was your wife that was pointing this out to you you start to think oh the world's round. we'll get there eventually But then you realize, no, I would love going the right direction more than I love my own pride. I love getting there more or less on time more than I love being right. So I will die to myself and recognize that I was wrong and turn the car around. And it's at that moment that you change course that you see repentance. The head has been changed. The heart has been changed. The car has been changed. You're going in a new direction. That's the concept of repentance. Now, the neat thing about repentance is that it implies a straight line afterwards. It's No matter which direction you're going, no matter how far off course you are, repentance implies it's the shortest way back and that's true with God. No matter how far you've wandered away from God in sin or in transgressions, repentance is the shortest way back. You turn from your sins, and you come back to God, and this is the message for all humanity. It's always at the forefront of humanity. Adam and Eve sin in the garden, and they hide, and God calls them to come out of hiding and come to him. Cain does not follow God's command for sacrifice, and God confronts Cain and says, Cain, why are you doing what is evil? You know what is right. Sin, it's crouching. It's waiting. Its desirous to have mastery over you. You must master it. You must, in a sense, come home, come back. That's the concept of repentance. You turn from your sin and you come back to God. This is the message that John the Baptist was preaching that will get him killed. And it's the message that Jesus begins to preach. Those who are on the crooked way need to go onto the straight path. They need to be reconciled to God. And the first response to Jesus hearing the message should be one of repentance. It's the opening line of his preaching. In fact, you can even notice it's the structure of this verse. When you look at how Jesus structures his sentence here, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You could outline it this way. In light of this, the kingdom, do this. In light of the fact that the king is here, surrounded by his subjects, waiting for commands and direction, you should do this. Repent. 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 You're going the wrong way, turn around, Jesus is saying. Now, repentance is not merely being sorry about sin. Repentance is being broken about sin. Repentance is not merely recognizing that you're a sinner. Repentance is recognizing that your sin is against God. It's about grieving over your sin because it was against God. And not in the way this is, oh, I'm sorry that I did something wrong that hurt my friends and hurt my family. I'm in a dark place. I've been making bad choices in life and it's hurting my loved ones. That's not repentance repentance is recognizing that you've sinned against God and being broken over that repentance is not what Saul did although Saul was earnest when he realized he offered the sacrifice that he should not have sacrificed he grabs Samuel and he's pleading with him so strongly that he ripped Samuel's cloak Saul was not lacking energy in his grief over his sin yet it was not repentance because he was sorry that he offended Samuel he was not sorry that he offended God True repentance is more like David in his sin against Bathsheba's husband. He recognized that he sinned by murdering an innocent man, by by committing adultery, by uh, abdicating his leadership over his military and over his people and putting his troops in danger. Those were all his sins. But that's not what broke him, if you remember. What broke him in, in 2 Samuel 12 was his declaration that it is against Yahweh I have sinned. That is biblical repentance. It's a brokenness that produces godliness. You can't see this or measure it based on tears. All kinds of people cry over their sin without repenting over their sin. They weep over it without being broken by it. A scene that's engraved in my mind is the end of Judges 1, the start of Judges 2, where the Israelites are are seeing their compromise already starting to rip their kingdom from their hands. And they gather together and they weep and they wail over their sin. They cry so much, they renamed the valley Bochim, which is the Hebrew collective for tears. It means they just flooded the place with tears. (laughs) They cried so much, they named the place Valley of Tears. And yet when they left the valley, they went right back to their sinful ways. That is not biblical repentance. The New Testament describes biblical repentance this way. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. It leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Godly sorrow brings you to God and His rescue and His salvation. A worldly sorrow, it may have tears, but they're tears of regret. They're tears of death. On the other hand, godly sorrow causes no regrets because you find yourself reconciled to God. A broken spirit and a contrite heart are the marks of repentance and those are not despised by God. God despises sin, but if the result of sin is repentance, then God despises the root, not the fruits. God rejoices in the repentant heart. The ways of life are filled with sorrow, but when sorrow brings repentance, then God rejoices and delights. As I mentioned, this is not a new message. It's the message that John the Baptist preached a few verses earlier. It's the message of the Old Testament. Think of, in my mind, uh, Solomon, when he's dedicating the temple. He's describing a time where Israel will be taken off into captivity. They'll be conquered by the Babylonians. And Solomon is envisioning, this is the very beginning of the temple. He's de- it's the temple dedication service. But Solomon knows centuries later, Israel will be taken captive. First Kings 8, verse 48, Solomon prays to the Lord, if they repent with all their minds, with all their hearts in the land of their enemies, and pray to you then hear in heaven and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions that they've committed against you, and grant them compassion. Solomon is begging God, saying, one day Israel will be devastated, but in that day, O Lord, they will repent and then listen to them. No matter how far away you are from the Lord, if you are in spiritual Babylon or spiritual Persia, the way back to a relationship with him is the same way that Solomon prayed for, repentance. Notice it on the verse in your screen. This is rooted in repentance. You can be reunited and reconciled to God on the road of repentance. The result of repentance is answered prayers, compassion from God, forgiveness for sins. When Joel prophesies about the coming Messiah, this is Joel 2, verse 12. It's quoted in the New Testament also. Yet even now, declares Yahweh, return to me with all your hearts, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to Yahweh your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. That word return, that's the Hebrew word for repent, to turn around. To change your mind, change your heart, change the direction you're walking. Turn it around. And it's the same word that's used of God here. That God will repent over the disaster he was sending you to. People struggle over this because doesn't repentance involve sin? Well, we repent from our sin. God does not sin, but the scripture still uses the same concept for God. The easiest way to understand what you see in Joel 2 is to think of Nineveh. Jonah goes to Nineveh and says, 40 days you're going to be overthrown. Nineveh repents. And then it says, God repents from the disaster he was going to send to them. Notice that God, removing punishment, removing judgment, removing disaster, is grounded in repentance. That we repent of our sin. And that really fills out the concept of repentance. It's not merely a turning away from sin, but it's a turning towards God. God. You return to me, Joel says. You rend your heart. It's an inward change. You repent not with your feet first, but with your heart first. You don't say, ah, I'm just not going to go to that sinful place anymore. That's not repentance. You know, repentance is not the person who says, I'm, not, I'm done going to the bar. That's not repentance. That's just about your feet. Repentance starts in your mind, realizing the evil of drunkenness goes to your heart that you love the Lord more than you love drunkenness, and then to the feet moralism starts with the feet and tries to work up to the heart (laughs) repentance is not saying oh i'm just not going to look at bad websites anymore repentance is starting in your mind recognizing how that sin is offensive to god then to your heart realizing that you love christ more than you love lust and then to your fingers as you log on to the website no i won't go there that's repentance It's a life change that begins with a mind change and a heart change and then the direction of your hands and your feet. This is what Solomon preached. It's what Joel preached. It's what John the Baptist preached. It's what Jesus begins his message preaching. And it's what he's going to end his time on earth preaching. After his resurrection, Luke 24, verse 46, Jesus is on the road to Emmaus. This is after his resurrection. He tells the disciples on the road to Emmaus, thus it is written, that the Messiah should suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. Jesus tells the disciples, this is the great commission. You're gonna go into the world, and what do you preach when you take the gospel to the world? You preach the gospel of repentance. This is what you find in the book of Acts. I mean, unless you think, oh, this is just an old dispensation It ends with Jesus. No, this is what happens in the book of Acts. When you look at Peter's preaching, and you can turn to the book of Acts, or you can follow along on your screen. The verses will all be there. But Acts 2, verse 38, Peter on Pentecost told the crowd, repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized, he told them. That's his initial preaching, Acts three, nineteen. Later, Peter's going to tell the Jewish rulers when they were arresting him, he tells them, repent and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. That's Acts three nineteen. Repent and turn again, he tells them. Pleading with the Pharisees, let go of your sinful deeds. Repent and turn again. Notice the redundancy. Turn from your sin by your act of repentance. Acts 8, verse 22, Peter, working with Simon the sorcerer, when Simon tried to buy the Holy Spirit. What a crazy encounter that was. <laughs> And Peter tells him, repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray that the Lord, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bondage of iniquity. Notice how Peter makes Simon's sin a heart issue and tells him, you've got to deal with this in your heart, man. See the bitterness in your heart and repent from it. Repent. That becomes the message he's preaching to the Jewish leaders to the Jewish crowd on Pentecost, even to the sorcerer. They get the same message. Acts chapter 11 is a scene where the apostles are trying to figure out how the Gentiles could be saved. I mean, can the Gentiles be saved without circumcision? Can they be saved without going to the the synagogue on the Sabbath? Can they be saved without keeping Moses' law? And they, they see the Holy Spirit demonstrating their conversion in powerful ways. The Gentiles are speaking in tongues and the apostles conclude, well then, Acts eleven eighteen. 18, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. This is, I love this verse because they're reverse engineering this. They're looking at the Gentiles and they say, oh, they're obviously saved, therefore they must have repented. Their conversion didn't begin with this message. Peter's just looking at them. They're speaking in tongues the same way the Jews and the Samaritans received the gospel, the Gentiles are, and so they recognize they must have been repentant. That's not just Peter either. This is Paul's preaching. And what is perhaps Paul's most famous sermon in Acts 17, the Sermon on Mars Hill. He explains to the Athenian self-proclaimed philosophers there, God is declaring to men that all everywhere should repent, Acts 17.30. And that also has the change of direction implied because before that, Paul's telling them, God used to let all the nations go their own way going back to the days of Peleg, where the continents drifted apart. And Paul says, God just let them all drift. He let them all go away from Israel. He worked with Israel, let the other nations go. But now, Paul says, it's time for them to come back. It's time for them to repent. This became Paul's pattern in his preaching. In fact, at the end of his life, when Luke is summarizing Paul's ministry, Acts 20, verse 21, Luke describes it this way. Paul was solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll look at that verse again later, but just for now, understand what what a great life message that could be for you. Can you imagine something better on your tombstone? (laughs) This person devoted his life to testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in Lord Jesus Christ paul at the end of his ministry in luke acts 20 or in acts in acts 26 he's on trial before agrippa and as a public apology for his preaching he told king agrippa that he had spent his life declaring to both the jews and gentiles acts twenty six twenty they should repent and turn to god performing deeds appropriate to repentance this is paul's own summary of his preaching that people should repent and of course that's what jesus preached as well back in matthew chapter 4 In fact, this is an essential element to Christianity. It's one of the things that makes Christians distinct. We care less about people's outward actions than we do about their inward hearts. We understand that they're connected, but when you turn from sin in your heart, it's gonna affect the way you live, but we don't go backwards at it. We don't tell people to clean up their life so that they can have a better heart. We say, no, part of coming to Christ is repenting in your heart of your sins. It's the mind change and the heart change, and of course that will flesh itself out in your life. You know you're always growing in this. When you get converted to faith in Christ, you don't know all the sins in your life, right? You're doing sins. You're doing sins right now that you don't even know about. <laughs> the idea of repentance is that you repent towards your sins. You repent away from your sins towards God. You confess the sins that you're aware of. And part of being a Christian is becoming aware more and more of your sins. <laughs> That's the nature of repentance. But as I said, that's only one of the two commands. There's two imperatives here. The first is repent, and the second is to believe. The second is to believe. Now, that's explicit in Mark's gospel, and it's explicit in much of Jesus' teaching. It's interesting, though, in Matthew 4, verse 17, that believe, is not, the word is not used there. It's implied. If it's in your Bible, it's in italics because it's implied. But the idea is repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, you believe that Jesus is the king. You believe that he is the Son of God, because you believe there's the repentance. This belief and repentance are together, but they're both the commands. When you're evangelizing, you tell someone to repent and you tell someone to believe. Why would you repent unless you believed? (laughs) That's another way of saying it. They're joined repentance is part of believing you could say it that way and you see them coupled throughout the new testament for example a verse we looked at earlier acts 20 verse 21 paul says that he spent his ministry testifying to the jews and the greeks of repentance towards god and faith without faith paul says it's impossible to please the lord whoever calls the name of the lord will be saved But you have to believe in him. You have to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. There's this belief element to it. Now, this saving faith, it's logically partnered with repentance. It's the kind of belief, the kind of faith that's supernatural. It's empowered from the work of God in the heart. God does this. It's the kind of belief that's supernatural. God's doing it to you. He grants you faith. Or to use Paul's language, he grants you that repentance even. It's it's God's work and it's not split apart from each other. It's not a merely volitional kind of faith of like, yes, I believe the truth about Jesus. I believe that he is God. I believe that he died on the cross and I believe that he rose from the grave. I believe those things therefore I'm saved. That's not saving faith. The demons believe that, right? And at least they tremble about it. That's a, James says that in the verse we'll get to in about 6 years probably. <laughs> saving faith is not merely mental assent or mental recognition of something that's true that's not faith saving faith is supernatural god came to his own his own did not receive him but to all those who did receive him who did believe in his name he gave them the right to be called children of god children not born of uh, the flesh or of a human decision or an act of the will but born by the Holy Spirit of God. It's a belief, not just in the facts of the gospel, but a belief in the beauty of Christ and the joy that comes in following Christ. It's a belief that the joys of Christ are greater than the joys of sin. That the glory of Christ is greater than the glory of sin. Where you desire to to go from serving sin, which is offensive to God, to serving Christ who is glorifying to God. That's the heart change. The mind changes to recognize that sin leads to death. Christ leads to life. The heart changes to love Christ more than sin. The foot changes to follow after Christ, not after sin. That's saving faith. The gospel falls on a stony heart, a, start, a heart that is not repentant, and the heart doesn't believe. I mean, the, the leaves may shoot up very quickly, but there's no roots there, and the, the sun comes and the, the leaves wither. But a heart that has fallowed ground, that is broken by its sin and broken with the work of repentance, the gospel takes root there and prospers and produces fruit. That's why Jesus begins his ministry with the call to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, I tell, I'm spending 90% of the time this morning, 98% of the time this morning, that first point, repent, and only a little bit of time on the second point, believe, if you're planning your lunch right now. <laughs> it's not an equally weighted sermon. And let me tell you why. I have never met somebody who's called himself a Christian who says, I recognize that my sin is bad and I'm repenting from sin. But I don't believe the gospel, and I don't believe Jesus. And I'm a Christian. I've never met that person. I've met lots of people that repent from sin without believing the gospel, repent in quotes, that say, I'm making bad choices in life, and I'm harming people, and I'm not going in a good way, and so I'm going to give up living that way, and instead take up CrossFit or something. But that person doesn't call himself a Christian, right? He just says, I was sinning, and I don't want to lead that bad life anymore. I want to do something wholesome and healthy. But they don't call themselves an evangelical Christian. I've never met a person who repents from sin, doesn't believe the gospel, and labels himself a Christian. But I have met lots of people who go the opposite way, who say, I believe the gospel. I believe in what Jesus says about himself. I believe the Bible is more or less true. But I'm not going to repent for my sin, but I'm a Christian. I've not only met people who have said that, I've met others who are confused by those people. They say, Oh, I know this person, so and so. They believe the gospel. They tell me they believe the gospel. I've heard them say, I believe the gospel. I've heard it. But they've never repented from their sins. I'm just, I just don't know what to do with that kind of. I'm confused. A person who doesn't repent from their sins is not a believer does not believe the gospel. Though they say I believe the gospel, they do not believe the gospel. They, they don't believe what Jesus says in, John, in Matthew 4, 17. They don't believe the first words of his preaching, which are repent. Repentance is a characteristic of believers. Now this is a razor's edge of error here, a razor's edge of truth, say it that way. You can fall off either side on this. One error when it comes to this is to say, I'm going to separate repentance from belief. I mean, they're they're logically connected. You have to set down what's in your arms to pick up the cross, right? You can't carry the cross and your sin at the same time. You've got to let down your burden and pick up the cross. You have to, to use the next verse in Matthew 4, you have to put down your nets to follow Christ. The practical point is that it's hard to follow Christ while carrying a bunch of fishing nets, There's a spiritual implication as well in that when you're fixing the little nets in your life, you're not listening to Jesus. You're not following him when you're so concerned about the little nets that got a tear in it and you're working on all the daily things in your life. Difficult to follow Christ that way. So he says, put the nets down. Not that fishing is sin. Not following Christ is the sin. So you don't want to separate faith and repentance. They are Two sides of the same coin. It's a package deal. They go together. So separating them and say, oh, this person believes the gospel without repenting from sin, that's a mistake. But the razor has another side of error on it also. The side of error of the person who says, you have to repent from your sins in order to believe. As a prerequisite of belief. That's another sin. That's another error. Let me use an extreme example to show you what I mean. The person who comes in who's the, you know, the drug dealing, prostituting sinner out there says, I, I want to believe the gospel, what do I do? And I, I, I wouldn't say, okay, stop doing drugs and stop leading that life. Go, go away this week and clean up your life. Come back on Sunday and I'll tell you the gospel. That's the other side of the error by presenting repentance as a prerequisite for saving faith. No, notice that it's connected. You're turning from sin to God. You're turning from your sinful ways to the glorious Savior. You don't turn from your sinful ways so that later on you can turn towards the Savior. And you don't turn towards the Savior without turning from your sinful ways. They're connected. They're one and the same. It's a characteristic of believers that they are repentant people because of their saving faith in Christ. Luther, one of his 95 theses, says, in declaring the Christian is a repentant person, the gospel makes it clear that we lead lives of repentance. Repentance is not a one time act, it's not the ticket that gets you into the kingdom and then you tack it on your wall like an old movie ticket. Repentance becomes the means by which you live your life repentance in faith, in partnership, and in sanctification. I love the Pilgrim's Progress. One of my favorite stories, I've read it to my kids. If you've been to my house, you know that we have six drawings from the Pilgrim's Progress on the wall of my living room. I tell you all this to know that I'm not like a fly-by-night fan here. I legitimately like the book. It's on my wall, okay? Nevertheless, I've mentioned this before to you, there is a problem with the allegory. The problem is that if you remember, Christian or pilgrim leaves his town, leaves his family, and goes on a journey towards the gate The gate for eternal life. And on that journey, he's carrying his burdens with him. He's carrying his sins with him as he's making his way towards the light. He goes through the the swamp of despair and despondency. He goes through the trials and temptations. He's going through all these difficulties while he's carrying his burdens because he hasn't got to the gate yet. That's the problem in the allegory. Saving faith doesn't have the gate so far away, (laughs) saving faith lets down your burdens. Let's go of your sins and goes through the gate of faith. It's one act. I pray if any of you are here this morning and you've never given your life to Christ, you've fancied yourself a believer, but you've never turned from your sin, you've fancied yourself a follower of Christ, but you've never confessed your sins in your heart, turned your feet around, and move towards Christ, that you would do that this morning. I challenge you, if you are a believer, and that you evangelize this week like Jesus did, that in your evangelism, in your conversation with other people, that you invite them to repent of their sins and believe in the gospel, that you don't shave the message of Christ in half, that you don't drop off the first words that he preached, that Peter preached, that Paul preached, but that you evangelize like our Savior taught us. Lord, we pray this week that you would give us the boldness to speak truth to those whom we love, that you would give us the boldness to call people in the world who are lost in sin to repent. Lord, help us understand that you are our beautiful Savior, and that you've given your life so that we might live. I pray that our hearts would be more in love with you than with our own sin. You're greater. You're more precious. So, Lord, cause us this week to be held captive by the power of the cross, the beauty of Christ, and the life that is in His resurrection. Let us follow in His ways, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.